Welcome to the Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast, the tirade-filled movie debate podcast hosted by two film critics, cool dads, and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. And I'm William. I have no clever middle name Johnson today. You know, you've been having a really good streak of really clever names, and it ends today. I'm sad to see that happen, but it's all right. Chris Hemsworth's Hemsworth's face? Have I? Have I? Yeah, you've been really good. We had poor names last time. You know, it's it's going well, but yeah. you kind of laying an egg early here. Okay. All right. That's my co-host, Will Johnson, and we're damn glad to have you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is all for tantrum's sake, where shared passions and high fives will wash away any place for hate. In the end, we encourage you all to love what you love. But for now, the gloves are off and hissy fit is on. This week, we are starting one part of a science fiction two-pack, and we are joined by a guest, a uh, follower of the show, supporter of the show, an inspiration to me as a podcaster, uh, as a newbie podcaster, and that is Aaron White of the Feelin' Film Podcast. Aaron White, say hello to the good folks. Hello, hello. You got my name wrong, though. It's Aaron Wright, not Aaron White. Oh. Oh. Is he, is he really going to do that? in front of two school teachers Come on. i mean i know we're struggling teachers but we're not struggling that bad no thanks thanks for having me one of us is struggling yes cause are, are, are got, we making that yeah i mean what the hell by the time it's done i'll either be dead or or it'll be gone so okay yes i i did finally after two years in a classroom with covid i've i, I received the covid vaccine or not the vaccine sorry i received the covid virus um and uh yeah it sucks but uh i'm still here so, so when we have the ventilator tribute show next week it's gonna be great huh? <laughs> okay i'm digging it yeah <laughs> yeah and then we, we, this is gonna be will the whole show just <laughs> it's gonna be the best. yeah that's what's gonna be like in the middle I'm of gonna, the show. I'm, you know what best co-host ever if that's the case i'm down for that <laughs> Down for that. It would be better than passengers. Anyways, oh, 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 hey, sorry. jumping ahead, jumping ahead. Let's not get ahead of yourself. So <laughs> we are here to we are here to talk about uh James Gray's Ad Astra. And Aaron White is here. And Aaron White is, like I said, to introduce him properly here. He is the one of the hosts of the Feeling Film Podcast, a Seattle-based critic. He's a member of the Seattle Film Critics Association, has a fantastic following on Facebook and on his social media areas where his podcast airs. Uh, fantastic ratings and reviews. He is climbing ever so closer to Rotten Tomatoes, which I'm rooting like crazy with my little flag that he gets in. He needs to get there someday, deserves to get there someday. Uh, he co-hosts that show with Patrick Hicks, uh, his best friend from Arkansas. And Aaron is really, really good. And you're going to find this out, listeners, that Aaron is here for the feels, just like the title of his show. Um, he puts the feels of film and the emotional response ahead of the technical merit. But the man has a very good eye for technical merit. So don't let it fool you. Aaron, you want to tell us more about just how you kind of got into this, you know, how you know, you know, myself and will you know just tell the people kind of your story here wow thank you man what an introduction that was extremely like nice (laughs) i mean it's a it's a dream i mean i'll I'll say it it's a social media dream come true for me because uh i fell into your podcast through you know mutual friends years ago you've been so kind to have me on for segments and shows and a moderator in the group a contributor on the website where you know without ever meeting you I'm that guy who can say, Hey, we go way back. And, Absolutely. and to, it's such a full circle thing for me in my head to get you on a place that I have to pretend to call home. So, well, I love it. And I appreciate and I it. I kind of know excited. Aaron a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I kind of know Aaron a little bit and um, yeah, he's fine. He's fine. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. So Feelin' Film got started, I don't know, five, six years ago now. I always forget. Uh, BVS is my memory point. So we started up based on Batman v Superman uh, because we love that film and we wanted to talk about it and it got sort of a negative response overall and we just wanted to kind of oppose that. And so we got on a mic and started a podcast and wow, here we are all these years later and it's been a wild ride uh, through everything, just getting more and more experience more and more different types of content out there don you've been a blessing you and i've done so many different shows and special podcasts together and it's really cool to watch you transition because i think you might have been might have been my show you were the first your first podcasting experience and it sure was yeah come into this and now here you are hosting this and will it's been fun to get to know you on social media as well and of course now that we're getting to talk face face-ish across the mm. miles. It'll just, you know, make it even better for us in the future. So I, I love oh, the yeah. podcasting space. I love the film critic community. Uh, and I'm excited to get a chance to holler at you guys a little bit with these two films. All right, man, it's gonna be good. Mm. So for the listeners who have followed us or even the feeling film people who are coming over to hopefully glean on this show a little bit, our format is this. The recommending lover goes first. They will get five uninterrupted minutes to shower their praise and state their harmonic case. In honor of our tie-breaking guest, the he will go first. Actually, I'm going first in this one. Never mind. The hater or any middle person after that will follow with their five uninterrupted minutes of their own to present their counterpoints with any manner of intellectual scorched earth or, you know, ham-fisted botched arguments. After that, we will open it up to 15 or 50 minutes of shared conversation where the hissy fit really gets chippy. folks. Check your heart rates, take a mental test, and let's go, because we got Brad Pitt's Ad Astra. Oh my gosh, am I first here? Okay, let me hit this up here. Uh, normally, this is not me. I don't get to go first too often. All right, my timer's on. So for Ad Astra, I kind of come at this with, um, there's kind of competing dichotomies in this movie that are really fascinating to me, and it's kind of a little bit of performance, a little bit of narrative, and so the beginning of the film kind of presents this focused, pragmatic you know, protagonist whose voiceovers are clear and stern about his kind of impervious state of mind. And that guy is Brad Pitt's Roy McBride character. And he endeavors kind of in a future here with, you know, that couldn't be wider with ambition. But there's obviously kind of a big thing going on that prevents, you know, that could kind of cataclysmically take care of the world. But and it's kind of when the storyline strikes that catalyst that calls for kind of preventing calamity that everything slowly shifts into those competing directions I'm talking about. And it's it's this push and pull that I find fascinating in the movie about, you know, the 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 ultra, you know, kind of the upright, you know, good soldier kind of typical guy who's super professional astronaut, you know, he's his colleagues kind of, you know, regard him as the guy who never has his heart rate up, never nervous. And yet he's entering a situation that you can tell slowly. And it's amazing performance from Pitt that kind of chips away at that, at that kind of composure because of just kind of poignant and kind of uh, familial kind of intimacy that, you know, what would, what would rattle a guy that you can't rattle? And it would be history and family. And I really kind of dig that because, you kind of take that claustrophobic closeness that is the intimacy of what's going on in Brad Pitt's you know, mind, his psyche, his, his actions, and you broaden that to 
just, you know, the solar system of landscape with this movie. And I just, I really enjoy it. You know, the, um, the global peril kind of in a way it's there and we know it, but it kind of shrinks away and hinges on this very simplistic fate of a father and his son. And I'm a sucker as a guy for, for father son movies. I don't have, I, we've talked about this on Aaron's show. I don't have a very great father. You know, he was um, an alcoholic kind of guy. He, and uh, you know, he's not that dad who's going to, you know, show up to ball practice or take a kid outside and do catch and stuff like that. So I was very mama's boy. And I get to movies like Feel the Dreams and Daddy, you know, Daddy Issue Stories, and, and they they eat me up, and I love it. And it's really cool now that I'm a father myself, and I'm really good with my dad now in adulthood versus where we were as kids. That I get to a story like this of a of a guy, you know, of age. It's not a coming of age story, which is nice. You have you know mature Brad Pitt pretty much playing his age. You know, great temples, you know, wrinkled expressions. He's you know he's definitely aging into the leather that he is, and. It's all about kind of that that step of what would I say to my father if I got a chance to see him again? Because plot suggestions for those who've seen it, you know, his dad was one of the, you know, go-getter astronauts that was the first guy to get outside of Mars, you know, go to Jupiter and Saturn. And he ends up at Neptune for whatever mission he's on to take care of, it, you know, intelligent life elsewhere. And there's just a sharpness of execution here that is just, I found something to behold that has a lot of profundity it it was something that i really enjoyed absorbing and impressing i i know it's kind of i don't want to call it slow cinema because enough good things happen but it's it i found a really nice balance in this movie between the thrills and then i don't want to say the chills because it's not a kind of a horror movie but just things that really rattle kind of the timber of your character a little bit and for as much as you have max richter's musical score that kind of you know does you know he's the guy who kind of you know, pulls, you know, brings that pulse rate up when, when things are moving at some urgency. But then I know, um, uh, Lauren Balf kind of comes in with some uncredited music to kind of, well, he's actually credited, but to kind of assist with the more melodic moments and the style of this movie, the pace of this movie, I know it's about two hours, four minutes. Um, a lot of people play the Solaris card and things like that. I'm not a 2001 space Odyssey guy where that movie bores me to pieces. Uh, I respect its greatness, but at the same time, it just loses me. This movie doesn't lose me. I, I just see a nice committed performance from Brad. I know it's, um, it's not the flashiest and smiliest thing he's ever done. Normally he's such a, you know, his mere presence has a charisma that can really overwhelm you, but he has this just ponderous material here from James Gray and kind of his, gruff dismissals and frozen pauses kind of of internal conflict really show something from Brad that I, that I don't normally see. And I appreciate that. So I, I enjoy that. And, and when you get to a Tommy Lee Jones is saved kind of a little bit of best for last where you get a surly tough Tommy Lee Jones. I'm always down for something like that, but the themes of the movie really speak things that I really enjoy, like what wears on men, you know, just like, this is a very male centered movie. A Bechdel test would hate this movie where Ruth mega is all you get. But, um, I do like that idea of just kind of, you know, there's my timer, but um, just uh, the kind of that where men are at with kind of figuring themselves out as sons and fathers, the idea of unfulfilled promises and just kind of those shared burdens. Some of that is, you know, fathers past the sons, but just a fascinating ruminative movie as a contact kind of guy. Like this is my speed of science fiction and I kind of dig it. Those are my five. Nice. Well done. I like it. So it's me, right? I get to go next. Is that right? Yes, sir. Done. All right. All right. So <clears throat> a couple of things. This one kind of 
I'm actually a lover too. I'm not in the middle. I actually gave this five stars. I think I've made it mm, my number uh, five film of that year. I think something like that. Uh, I'm not sure exactly, but because <clears throat> I didn't do any research for the show as usual. But um, no, I I liked it a lot, and it kind of hit a number of things for me. Um, one is when I was a young lad. One of my all-time favorite books was The Illustrated Man by Ray Bradbury. And there was a particular story that struck me as a young kid. Uh, and it's always stuck with me. And the way I look at science fiction, I mean, science fiction is kind of like heavy metal music. You can have so many different variations that are good of sci-fi. You can have variations that are very bad as well. Um, but one thing I liked about uh, Ray Bradbury's uh, short story collection, Illustrious Man. So there was one particular story called No Particular Night or Morning. And what it was is you basically had these two friends that are uh, in a spaceship, uh, just in space, in the vast emptiness of space. And one of them starts to question his existence to the point of opening the door to a space capsule and floating off into space to try to figure out what existence even is while the other guy looks on like, what the hell? Um, something about the imagery of seeing, you know, a, a person floating into this endless black uh, always fascinated me. And I've always appreciated though. I am a Star Trek fan and <clears throat> I like, you know, the, the cause, the cosmic side of Marvel and all that stuff, you know, something about showing space in in its, Cold, dark, immense reality is something that's always intrigued me. Ad Astra is one of those films that does that for me. Another one that does that for me is Star Trek The Motion Picture. I think it's one of the few Star Trek films and a few sci-fi films, really, that gives you that immensity of space. It doesn't feel like it's uh, a black background with little stars running by. It feels like you're in space. So Ad Astra hits that for me. Now, I am... I'm not... I'm not against slow paced movies. I like a slow pace if I feel like I'm getting somewhere. And Ad Astra is one of the, is one of the ones where not only are you getting the visual, uh, the visuals, which are gorgeous and beautiful, but you are getting character development too. One, one issue that I've been having, I've mentioned it on the show is that I feel like in the last couple of years, we've been getting these astounding visual pictures, you know, these, these movies that have such, power to them visually, but then have nothing going for them character-wise or emotional-wise. Um, I think a huge victim of that this this year has been Dune, which I am not a huge fan of. I mean, I, I, I gave it three stars alone on the visuals, but I felt no connection. Ad Astra manages to do both the visual storytelling and the personal storytelling, combining them together and giving you something really beautiful. And that is kind of Maybe this will enrage Don a little bit, but you know, maybe that this handles the concept of the universe both on a micro and macro level better than something like, say, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. Okay, whereas you have this exist, you have this presentation of this sprawling, infinite universe, and then you have something so small like the relationship between a father and a son, uh, and they both play out so well because. Um, I think we all have these moments of feeling like we're insignificant or small and you kind of look up and go, God, what, what is, you know, 
how does this all work? I, I recently visited the um, Meteor Crater uh, in Winslow, Arizona. They, that's where they filmed portions of Starman, um, the ending of Starman, John Carpenter's Starman. And I remember just standing, I, I, we weren't able to go into the crater itself, but I remember just kind of standing on the observation deck, looking at this gigantic, gigantic hole that came you know, from this gigantic meteor that came from space, right? And just thinking, man, you know, I'm worried about the NFL playoffs, or I'm worried about getting this paper done, or I'm worried, you know, and you kind of realize that the, the universe is so an, immense and huge that you, you can get lost in the minutiae, but then sometimes you got to look at the bigger picture. And Ad Astra, to me, manages to do both. And that's why I loved it. Now, I haven't gone into too many specifics. The performances are great. Tommy Lee Jones is pretty much always going to give you something good, unless he's in a Men in Black sequel. And, uh, you know, we get Donald Sutherland, too. Liv Tyler, Ruth Naga. I mean, this is kind of like a perfect film. It has an old Hollywood style to it. It's got a fantastic look, a fantastic story, great acting. I mean, there's not much more you can ask for from a motion picture like this. Well done, sir. Well done. To our guest closing us out. Thanks. All right. So here's the thing. Ad Astra for me was one of my most anticipated films of its year. I love me some sci-fi. It's probably my favorite overall genre. And yet I have a reoccurring kind of an issue that happens to me with films that I really, really am excited for. And that is when I go into them. I can't get past my own expectations and and I can try. It's not something that is not, you know, unknown. It just is what it is. And so sometimes it'll take a second viewing for me to come around and to kind of know what I'm getting into and then get on a film's level or as the kids say to vibe with it. Right. And for me, that was what happened with that Astra. I came out of it the first time and I was like, I love James Gray, one of my favorite directors. I love science fiction. Why do I not love this movie? What's wrong with me? And yet, when I got around to revisiting it for the podcast, and also when I got around to watching it with his commentary and learning more about it and diving into some interviews, I listened to an interview today from back when he was with the Directors Guild of America, having Damien Chazelle talk with him about the movie. And I learned so much about his intent. and. The movie just affected me so much more on a deeper level. Yes, it's visually astounding. That score is incredible. I think these are the obvious things about the movie. The Brad Pitt performance, I would say, is probably award-worthy. He could have legitimately been nominated for Best Actor for this and the Best Supporting Actor that he won for Once Upon a Time that year. His nuanced performance here is just staggering when you realize what he is conveying and it's something that we don't get to see don you mentioned this it's this picture of a man who is broken and he is chasing after his father's dreams he wants to live up to that he wants to follow in the footsteps of this great man and yet here we are in a world where it's showing us the reality that great men aren't always great there is a lack of humanity a lack of love a lack of kindness that comes with the father figure in this movie. And it shows us a stark reality that I think the world is even grappling with just in rea- in relation to the way we've idolized people in the past in our history books. And we're starting to look at them more critically and go, oh, okay, so this person may have accomplished a great goal, 
in exploration, but at what cost? What kind of person were they? And that's what we see in this movie. We see someone who is obsessed with being out there and pushing forward to the point of murder and to the point of completely not caring about his own family whatsoever. And it makes you question, is that worth it? Is that the person we want exploring? And ultimately, this movie you know, comes to the conclusion that it's not. And I love that. I love this idea of seeing a person who is broken inside and he's out there trying to chase what he thinks is this greatness and then wrestling with coming to the realization that, hey, maybe I need to worry about what's here in front of me now and not the vastness of space. It doesn't take away from the beauty and the amazingness and the idea of looking outward, but it really refocuses us to focusing inward, even though this movie is set out in space, right? And I think that's brilliant. And I think, Will, you may have mentioned this during the intro or before we were recording, but you had just watched The Green Knight. And my favorite line from that movie was also my favorite line of any movie in 2021. And it's this, why greatness? Why is goodness not enough? And I couldn't help but keep thinking about that over and over during this film, because that's what James Gray is going for. And the way he shot this just completely focused on one guy. We almost always see these films where there's this world out there built into space. And instead it's really hyper-focused on one person and and the earth has gone to the moon. And what did we do? We just made the moon, the earth. And I think it's a very realistic depiction of what kind of commercialization the world would probably really impart upon the cosmos if we actually did discover anything or if we were able to actually populate other planets and other stars. So there's that aspect of this movie that I really enjoy as well. And I just absolutely loved it this time around. I'm so glad because I always want to be in love with movies and it feels great to have that feeling about this one finally. Well done. Look at look at the beep beep you got. Oh, my it. Nicely <laughs> done. Nicely done. No, no, no. You're good. You're good. You're good. Um, ladies and gents, uh, we will break for a short announcement from our non-corporate partners and friends. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, welcome back. Man, look at this. Not, it, I love the... I don't know if we can call it triple love, but I think we're kind of there. You know, Will, Will puts it five in top 10 of the year. I, it's a strong four for me. And then, you know, Aaron come in and busted it out in the third spot. Where do we want to go first, gents? What's a, what's a floating topic out there? Well, it's funny because um, I was just looking up general Ad Astra stuff, you know, beforehand to, uh, you know, get some facts and figures and all that stuff. And uh, one of my sure. favorite things is when you go to, when you go to Google and you go to like like I just typed in Ad Astra, right? It'll mm-hmm. give you the IMDb first, and then it'll say like people also ask. And oh. this this time knew I was going to like this movie uh, because there are some of the most well. For, the first question that people ask is: Is Ad Astra boring? 
so I know I'm, I know I'm going to like it because you know there's pl- probably plenty of people that came out of this movie going, "Oh, that was really boring." Yeah, and I'm going to like something like that. Um, is that Astro a flop? Is it a true story? Which I think is hilarious. Uh, why were there? <laughs> Why were there baboons in Ad Astra? Ah, uh, um, yeah, good point. <laughs> stuff like that. But anyways, I, you know, so, you know, I know that Don struggles with slow-burning films. I do. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm selective. I'm selective, but, yeah. I mean, I can I see a general say I'm selective. I want to say I'm a selective, too. Like, all right, sorry, Jane Campion. You have a nice film, but not the greatest film in the whole wide world. And then there's other slow things that I, like, I love The English Patient of all things you know so stuff like that comes out of me where oh. i don't know it's the it's the route you take in the slowness like what 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 piece of quicksand are you stuck in and i'm there yeah i think that's fair you? i i mean i don't necessarily gravitate towards slow films either there are plenty of them that are just fine power the dog drive my car i wanted mm-hmm. to just fall asleep for three hours and Yet something like the Green Knight that moves at a very slow pace or this yeah. or or even 2001 for me personally, you know, those I really resonate with. So I think it's hit or miss. And I think that's probably normal for us. I think right? so. Is, you know, you're never going to know. I wanted to talk about the let's can we start with the moon real quick? Because I, I yeah, just want to talk about this idea. And so when I was listening to this interview with. James and Damien Chazelle, he was. Okay saying how, you know, it's hard to make a space movie that doesn't reference 2001. Because I know, right? It's, it's like the one, right? Mm-hmm. And he was dead set, though, on trying to depict it as he thought it would truly look. And so we get this moon that has been commercialized, like I mentioned. I mean, there's an Applebee's mm-hmm. on the moon. And I remember seeing that the first time and laughing and being like, this is a stupid movie. Why is Applebee's on the moon? <laughs> yeah. But then... <laughs> When I listened to the interview and I kind of came to more of an understanding of the purpose of this, it's he went in depth about saying that that he was talking to different uh, restaurant chains and such, and they're all Mm -hmm. working on not meat is what he called it. So they're all working on trying to create some sort of replacement for meat for if we ever run out. Right. And. That was, this is a leader. Applebee's is like one of the ones who would be a leader in this type of work. And so we see this moon and it's basically, we just put the earth on the moon. It's not a cool space station. That's all, you know, technical in nature. It's got an an escalator, you know, it's, it's uh, just like here. Go ahead. And we also, we also went right into the tribalism right away in terms of, separating the putting the demarcations of like, no, this is my territory on the moon. This is mine. And never thinking like, well, this was kind of its own thing that had no human interference. And now we've got McDonald's on one corner and pirates in another. And you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's, it's, it's human nature, destroying humans, destroying nature. And I love how I don't, I don't know if I'm using the word right, but like, I love how meta that is because like, obviously Brad walks through all that to be the man on the mission. Who's going to, Nope, I'm going to keep going. I need to get to the launch thing. I got, I got places to be like, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a lily pad that the frog skips on to get further into the movie. But it, you're right. It stays there just enough to kind of present that look 
present that setting, present that message and a message of like what would really happen and probably would happen like this. The fact that we even have like the hot towel, sir, you know, commercial space travel to Mars. Or I'm sorry, to the $150. Moon. Yeah. Did you hear that? <laughs> yeah. I would like the special meal package, $150, sir. So inflation still exists, clearly. And yeah, so, but I like how I think another movie would dwell on that shit and make it a social commentary. Like if this was an Adam McKay movie, it'd be nothing but the minutiae of the details. <laughs> but for a James Gray movie, it's just the, you know, the, the reeds and the bamboo and the and the, the the brush you're trying to get through as you move through your trail to a further more important thing than just what's there. But enough of it shows to be like, ooh, look at that. Absolutely, and I, yeah. you know, even to the point of, I think, you know, I laughed also at the baboon section the first time I saw the movie, and I was like, I, what is going on here? Uh-huh. Why are there baboons in space? But the more you think about why something is there versus in that shocked kind of place Mm -hmm. you realize okay so they're i love that sequence he they're flying to mars and the captain of the space shuttle is like listen it's in the regulations like i am bound to respond to this distress call okay that makes sense and then you find out it was a science vessel where they were doing experiments with these baboons which is completely Mm -hmm. believable very much so they went wild, right? And they ended yeah. up killing the people. So there's like literally nothing weird about it. On, no. If you really think about it, this is a very realistic scenario that could have taken yeah. place at this time. And it provides a little bit of an action bump. And mm-hmm. I think what it does as well, along with several moments on Roy's journey, but this one specifically, is you see how calm he is in all of these engagements he's he's Mm -hmm. you know they have like it's almost like that the test from blade runner 2049 i kept wanting to hear brad pitt be like cells interlinked cells (laughs) um you know because he's doing this baseline right they it's all about keeping people on an even keel so that they follow (laughs) the rules and uh and what we see in roy is this person who is able to do that and he's able to kind of suppress emotion and suppress emotion and suppress emotion mm-hmm. and it helps him get through things but that builds up over the course of the film over and over and yeah. over to the point where you know another great moment is of this is he's not a bad person he is genuinely he's not trying to be a pirate and take over the space shuttle the rocket with that when it's headed off to the space station to his dad right he gets on board and he's like, don't shoot. Like, don't listen. I'm not here to hurt you. And then when he leaves the message at the end of that whole incident, he's like, I'm not going to go over what happened. He's like, the recorder will tell the story and then I'll be judged. But you can mm-hmm. tell, like, he didn't want all of that to happen. He tries to save one of the guys. Right. And it's very different. I feel like so many movies would have him become willing to sacrifice others. Agreed. In order to achieve his goal, which is what his dad did, right? And you see him that he's not like his dad. He thinks he is, but he's actually not. Mm-hmm. And so as he gets to that point, and then you build up to this moment with Tommy Lee and those realizations hit him. And dude, when he cries, that first moment when his tear when that tear falls, yeah. and his dad is telling him to his face mm-hmm. after not seeing him for whatever, 25 years or whatever it is, and he's like, I don't love you. I didn't mm. care about you. I didn't want to come home. Can you freaking imagine like putting yourself in that position? Can you even fathom? No, I sure that, can. Right. 
Um, and I just, I think that the movie does such a good job of building up this guy who is so obsessed with needing that father's love and approval that he would inadvertently sacrifice his own marriage. He doesn't even see it. He doesn't even realize it, but yet he really is a good person inside. He's just so consumed with needing the wrong person's love and Mm. validation. And he goes on this whole journey, you know, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful place where he leaves off. It's kind of, it's, it's hopeful. It's inspiring to me. I agree. No, I, I I like what you're, um, one thing you were talking about that kind of leads us to this point is director's intent. And I, I, I admit I've landed in places movie to movie, year to year. It happens all the time where I, I, I will sit here with the critic hat on with the, you know, the Irish, you know, knit hat or whatever, and just be a guy who's like, well, I don't know if that's really what's going on here. That's a, you know, a thing, you know, I'll get to a point where I just, I'll try to guess intention and try to guess it, you know, in temper expectations. I'm always really good at that, but it's, I'm always fascinated every single time I, I discover an an artist and a director's intentions because it tends to really flesh out the, I don't want to say objectives because that's a shitty word to put there. And I'm going to get shit from the feeling film people on that one. But, um, no, you, you see intent intent's the better word there. I, I like when director's intent comes out and it, and it shows and this is a movie where the more I learn about it, the more I'm like, wow, yeah, like if you're going to draw that parallel, boy, you drew it with Sharpie. You did a great job. And yeah, I just, I, I, I'm normally not a James Gray guy. Like I, the, the lost city of Z bores me to pieces, but I get to here and I'm, and I'm, and I'm in, you know, full knuckles. So it's pretty good. I also wanted to make mention that I think it's really cool. See, the lost city of Z is also an all time favorite of mine. And I just, I, because I love stories about, like adventuring and exploration i normally and, do too but that one just just i don't know it, it was different it's definitely yeah. ruminating in the same way but i think what's really cool about him going from that film to this film is mm-hmm. that is a movie about an explorer who also sacrifices his family to an extent but ultimately ends up taking his kid with him because he does love his children mm-hmm. and it's almost like romanticizing his choices, like he finds something out there. Yeah. And it's the opposite because here we see the negative side of that exact same thing. It's a, it's a person exploring, but at the cost of that relationship and there's really nothing out there. And what's the point? And I just love that dichotomy that he kind of does in these two films that have such a similar tone, but yet in completely different spaces and going completely different directions. Yeah. And that's what surprises me is because I, I was so lost with Lost City Z and then so captivated by this that I'm like, gosh, how, I need to give Lost City Z a better chance. Simple as that. I've never seen it. So, Ooh. Well, hey, uh, COVID, man, I, I tell you what, you know. Well, I mean, part of COVID is fatigue. So I don't know if it's going to bore me to tears. <laughs> I mean, Remember. We'll see oh, yeah. It's, it's much slower. Than it is. This. There's a yeah. lot less action to yeah. it. Yeah. There's like yeah. that one, and, and, and oh, yeah, there's not much to it. And I don't need action because one thing, like I said, one of the things I love about Ad Astra is it reminded me of one of my favorite Star Trek movies. I think I've actually put it, it's funny because me and Aaron have been talking about this online mm-hmm. um, recently, is Star Trek movies. And uh, the motion picture to me is like top three, top two for me of all of them. And a lot of people are like, what? Because... A lot of people just think it's slow and boring and everything like that. But I, I like the introspection. I like that Me mixture too. of 
I like that mixture of, like I said, the grandness of space mixed with the, the let's let's say the macro of space with the micro of the human emotions. You know, and you're, you, you're going to do that. Find, you're going to do that micro uh, macro thing all week, aren't you, man? I tell you, it comes out in every recording. It does. Uh, lately, well it's, better, well, it's better than ten pounds of sugar in a five pound bag, whatever the fuck you say. Uh, anyway, so as guilty as charged. <laughs> but. Um, no, so and and I found a lot of similarities to not only that that book I was telling you guys about, but um, Star Trek: The Motion Picture as well, because you do have a character that in Star Trek: The Motion Picture and Spock, uh, obviously it's a little bit more literal in terms of his lack of emotion or his attempts to have lacks of a lack of emotion, who has kind of an emotional breakthrough, and that movie also ends on a hopeful note as well. So I saw a lot of similarities between uh, those two. I got a question for the for the collected dais here. How do you folks feel about Brad Pitt's voiceover? I know a lot of people are kind of anti voiceover. Where could the same could the same aspects and the same depth be conveyed without it? You know, I don't I don't want to you know bring Blade Runner as an example, but is this a place where it works? Is this a place where it doesn't work? Is it too much? Too little? How do you feel about it? I'll go. I mean, I love it. And again, that was one of the things that I think I had to become accustomed to. Right. And I needed that second viewing. It has become almost a, a laugh for me now at this point. It's happening so often that I just need to stop responding to a movie after the first time. I just, <laughs> like, I just can't mm -hmm. even review them after the first time because I know it's going to get you know flipped on its head when I go to a second showing of it. But the second time around, yeah, it didn't bother me at all. In fact, it added stuff to it because you're getting inside his head you're you're following the psychological track of what is going on with him and it's interspersed between the action bits and i think that it really does help to add this i don't know maybe it's because it's him too mm -hmm. i mean his voiceover is done so well and i think casting him in this role when this is the man who is famous and beloved by a certain sect of moviegoer as freaking Tyler Durden, which is the complete, like, yeah, gross opposite of where he's going to end up, you know? And it's just, I think, really helpful for me to see what's going on inside the man when all he's doing is sitting in a transport going from earth to the moon um, or watching him climb on this gigantic, insane antenna, you know, dozens and dozens of miles above the surface of the earth. So I enjoyed it a lot and I thought that it worked really well uh, for me. Yeah. Voiceovers are just like anything else in a film, like, um, you know, a movie score, if it's used too manipulatively or if it's bad, you notice it. You know, if a visual effect stands out or an acting performance doesn't quite fit, you, you kind of notice it. I, voiceovers are the same for me. Um, like, if I'm not noticing it's a voiceover and it's just, it's organically part of the story, then I have no issue with it. I mean, sometimes you can hear a voiceover and you go, ooh, that was not a good choice to do. Uh, but in this one, it was fine. I, 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 I didn't even remember because it's so part of the film. Like I wasn't even like, Oh mm -hmm. yeah, there's a voiceover. Like it, if it's, if it's organic and it makes sense, like it, you don't even really notice it as a storytelling device. It's just, it's just there. Yeah. I feel like there's voiceovers that are like 
a second layer of exposition and they just are tedious in that in that particular way but this one <laughs> well you can yeah good yeah but no no but but, but pits here is you have this I guess for the people who really love Brad Pitt and charisma, you have this very intentionally blank performance from Brad Pitt, or at least a very composed performance from Brad Pitt. So for me, the voiceover is that that peak inside what's beyond the eyes, what's beyond the sternness, and what's beyond the, the, the I don't want to say the stalwart heroism, but it's there too, you know, what's beyond the pulse rate. And I, I, I like that it's not just an exposition dump from Pitt. Like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get here? How am I going to get there? And oh, I hope we get to this. I hope we get to that. It's, it's, it truly is raw thoughts and it, it fits mm-hmm. the opposite. Like it, it's a nice tug of war between what he presents on his little tests and what's really going on in his head. And I dig that. Yeah, no, I was going to bring up, I, I know we're using Blade Runner as an obvious example, but that's mm. just such a major example of, a film that has its fans with it and without it. But um, there's the infamous, you know, we all know Harrison Ford's a grumpy guy, but there's kind of the infamous, like uh, unedited audio tracks of Harrison Ford recording the audio for Blade Runner for the voiceover. And, you know, and he'll, you can hear him doing the acting part, you know, where he goes mm-hmm. like, Oh, it's a snake scale. And then you can hear him in the background going, this fucking sucks. Why are we doing this? Like yeah. you can, you can tell like when it's laborious or, you know, mm-hmm. just full of, like you said, exposition dumps and stuff. Like it doesn't feel natural. Like I look at it like, you know, if I'm just sitting at my desk right now and I, and I start narrating what's happening in the <laughs> living room versus right. like, if I'm recording a video of like my, my kid taking their first steps or something, it's, it's all context. It's all how it fits in. It doesn't make sense in some contexts. It does in others. This one is a very, introspective movie and what do you do when you're introspective you're thinking to yourself and you're speaking to yourself and having thoughts and that's what this movie does so it just feels organic and natural to me no issues so two two questions i want to know where you guys stand on this the idea of is there isn't there life and what is your opinion on kind of what the film is saying about not not what is your opinion of what the film is saying but where do you personally stand when it comes to the idea here of should we continue to push on at all costs, even when everything tells us, no, there's probably nothing out there. James Gray was saying in his interview, he's like, listen, we've been sending out signals so deep mm-hmm. out into the solar system for decades now, and there's never been a peep back. You first at some point, mm-hmm. do you? Um, I'll let you go first. Well, hit it. Believe it or I was to say, believe it or not, even though I'm an atheist and I don't, I I think the universe is too big to just be us. Um, but, and 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 I uh, and I don't know if that's me looking at human arrogance through history because we've always just assumed, until proven otherwise, that you know we're the center of the universe. You know, the planet is the center of our solar system. Oh wait, we're not. Oh, and also there's other solar systems. I. I I just think it's too big and too vast for it to be just us. It just wouldn't make sense to me for it to be that open. Uh, you know, cuz then what's it for, you know? Like yeah. I, I don't know. I, I mean, am I arrogant to assume that if we are the only intelligent species in the universe, 
are we the only one that's important? Because apparently there's like, like Aaron was saying, there's no life dinging back towards us. But at the same time, it's kind of like, well, God, that's a lot of, mm-hmm. that's a lot of stuff for there to be just this tiny little ball in yeah. one tiny little solar system for it to be. I just, I, I'm a pretty cynical person in general, but to me, it would, I seem very cynical of assuming that we're the only intelligent life in the universe. That's kind of where I stand. I'll piggyback there because as the, Oh, man, I, as the struggling Christian who's just not a very good Christian, I, I, I go back to the movie Contact, and we, I, I was lucky enough to be on the film and film podcast for this, where I love that line from the dad who puts it in a whimsy way in Contact of, you know, if it was just us, it'd be an awful waste of space. Mm-hmm. Where I, I have to think, I have to think just from sheer math, because that's where Jodie Foster takes it further is, you know, what she's her line of like, if, it was, if just one in a million was this, if just one in a million was that, if just one in a million was this, there would be millions more like us or planets that are possible where I have to think so. Now, I'll also play the Tom Skerritt role of contact where, yes, mm-hmm. there's probably something out there, but it is either too far or too whatever we are unadvanced or our stuff can't reach it. We'll never see it. It's just too far because uh, you hear about, and this movie is very convenient about how fast the space travel is. Like our, our satellites, the best satellites we've ever had took 30 years to get to Pluto. And it's like 78 days to get to Neptune from Mars in this movie, where it's like a nice little plot armor of like moving up a little quicker and speeding things along. Not that Brad Pitt was going to show up with a, you know, 19 year beard to meet his dead father. But because by that point, come on, 19 years. But um, but no, I I do. I have to believe there's more out there. And I'm fascinated by the the thought of that, because part of me gets to a Dr. Seuss level where. We're a speck on a speck on a speck when you really think about it. And that existential dread haunts me all the time. And yet, mm. you know, because I, I do look at that and go, gosh, we're, we are nothing. We are meaningless. We are small. There Now, I when all those moments come to me and it happens, I, I look to my left and I look to my right and I go, you know what? Then if that's the case, if we really are nothing or if we really are insignificant or small, then, hey, Make the best of what time you have here. You know, I love my kids. I love my family. I lean on that. I lean on the things that bring me joy because that's a better way to live than to have the existential dread. So, and I think this movie goes there because like, no matter, you know, no matter what is this, no matter what is that, no matter what my father's life was, life's work was, and obviously substantial, but at the same time of not ever coming up with, I I love that, that. I love that that's Gray's conclusion is he spent all that time out there, took fascinating footage of different things, but still never found anything. I think a different movie with more optimistic or whimsical expectations would be like, would be sitting on a landmine of like, no, look, Tommy Lee, he found stuff, guys, he found stuff and we'll never know if we don't save him. And it moved, the movie doesn't go for that very low hanging optimistic fruit. And I'm very okay with that because at the end of the day, pushing against the existential dread it's just the son trying to be cool and get not to trying to be cool but just trying to get right with his dad and that i can respect no matter how much of a spec on a spec we are yeah i I love it that's good stuff i mean i'm glad to hear your answers I, i don't know where i stand necessarily i think probably we are the only intelligent to the point of human life i mean i think there may be plasma or some random, you know what I mean? Like some sort of fauna type life. Sure. But I don't think that there's a sentient life. But I, what I do love about this, and 
Gray himself is anti-religion. He is very much here. We are back um, at intent, you know, exactly. Right. And so you can see that kind of, it's funny because I think in a way (laughs) he comes to the position that I know from my Christian faith, many people would agree with and say like, this is the way it should be anyway. And it's weird that he comes to that same like ending point, (laughs) even though Mm -hmm. it's not for the same reason necessarily, but ultimately it comes back to treasuring the now and worrying about the present and not spending all of your energy and time trying to push forward, push forward and find something else because you need what validation or to prove this to yourself. So it's a really interesting thing. And I think that's what I love about movies of this type is just because you can't just watch this and be entertained. Mm -hmm. You will come away from it with these thoughts kind of percolating in your head, whether it's for just five minutes or maybe it's for days. And that's what I love because maybe it doesn't give you any sort of life changing revelation, but it doesn't hurt to consider questions of of this nature. Yeah. I like the way you put that. You're like, it doesn't hurt to have those recommendations, have those questions and go those moments. And I, man, I can list movies that do that to me. Like I, like contact that we've had a show on it. That movie, you know, hits me in the, in the, in the nuts at the core. And, um, a movie a couple years ago, I think it's the same year as Ad Astra. Uh, I love, it's a small, simple movie, but I love Clara where it, it you know, very actionable history, especially now because the James Webb satellite is up and going looking for, you know, um, solar shadows of planets that could be in the right zone and all that. And that movie obviously takes a romanticized ending to like, Hey, they got something, you know, it's not just a, a search for nothing. They, you know, they hooked one and I, and that movie, you know, breaks me down to pieces in a great way. But at the same time, if it didn't, I'd still be along for the journey. Yep. No, I'm yeah. with you. Contact is another good uh, comparison piece for this. Cause that was a mm-hmm. big, that was an influential one for me as a kid. I think I was, let's see, what was I? It's 97, was six, right? So 16 ish uh, for you. Yeah. It was four, 14. 14 something like that yeah maybe yeah so that kind of hit really hard too because it did bring up all these questions you know and yeah like you said and like aaron said you know there's nothing wrong with uh answering some questions now the difference and we can bring up brad pitt and i think aaron did with fight club is don't take the questions this asks and make it a philosophy of your life use it to better your life you know don't Mm -hmm. be like fight club and make that like your your personality like you know yeah. use it as a as a stepping stool to finding something about yourself not the reason you exist you know i dig it closing thoughts fellas what what else is floating around out there or aaron did you have a second question out of the two there i did and i totally forgot it as we were talking about the first <laughs> uh, so it's right. obviously not that big of a deal my, my only thing is just to say to anybody listening if you've only seen this one once and you're not already in love with it or you were so so or you didn't think it did some things right, or you didn't think the pacing was perfect or whatever the case may be. I just encourage a second watch with some of these ideas in mind with really locking into the story as it's meant to be told. It is not an action blockbuster. Those pieces are there and they're there to keep the energy from going full like trail life mode or full Mm. 2001 mode. Yeah. fuck. And they're fun to look at, right? But the whole purpose of this is to follow the stoic to impactful 
emotional journey of Brad Pitt's character and to think about what it means to push on at all costs at the, at the, you know, by sacrificing your human relationships along the way. And if you watch it with all of that in mind, knowing that that's what it's about, I think it's a much better movie no matter what. Mm-hmm. Here, here. Agreed. Agreed. I can't add anything to that. That's perfect. Perfect way to look at it. Cool. Well, Aaron, you know, between this recording and whenever we have you back again, thank you very much. I know we have a two-pack in mind, sneak preview for the audience. We will get to Morton Tildum's Passengers very, very soon. Yeah, Aaron, why don't you give us some uh, places we can follow you uh, on the social medias on the internet? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can get me on Twitter. I'm very, very active at Feelin' Film. That's F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M. You can also find me in the Feelin' Film Facebook discussion group along with these two knuckleheads. So we're chatting it up there all day, every day. Great place to come and hang out and talk with other cinephiles and other blockbuster lovers alike and just have a good time talking about film. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook. I'm, I'm pretty much everywhere. Um, all my links are on my own show notes to my podcast. So if you find my podcast, Feelin' Film, which is literally everywhere you can possibly get a podcast, then all my social links are there and uh, happy to chat it up. He is indeed everywhere. He's impossible to escape. Help me. This is true. Anyways. I feel like he has, noti- <laughs> I feel like he has notifications set on all of our posts. Like it's like, he's so quick. <laughs> I know. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, for us, for us, cinephile hissy fit. Um, follow us on Twitter at cinephile fit. And on Facebook at Cinephile His Fit Podcast. Also find both of us on Letterboxd. Aaron, are you on Letterboxd? I am. Aaron L. White. A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. Indeed. Thank you so much, everyone, for your captive audience and social media participation. Cinephile Hissy Fit is a 25YL media podcast. We are brought to you by RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Please visit, rate, review, and subscribe. We are also on Rotten Tomatoes. If you enjoyed this show, we have more where that came from with more of those interesting hosts that we are and many more wonderful guests like Aaron. All available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite shows.